Okay, and welcome to the March edition of the Cinetopia podcast. Um, I'm here, I'm Amanda, I'm founder of Cinetopia, and I'm here with my co-producer Jim Ross from Take One magazine. Jim, how are you doing? Good, good. Same old, same old. <laughs> you know, still in lockdown, pining for cinemas. Yes, more and um, more more films to to um to come out sooner rather than later um and um and i'm sure you caught the um golden globes um stayed up all night to watch it i'm I, I I, oh wow we're going to, we're going straight out the gate with the awards chat <laughs> just want to throw that in oh yeah, yeah no fun. i was glued to, i was glued to the golden globes <laughs> yeah. i love a, i love a golden globe They're yeah completely worthwhile um well yeah i i fully expected you were us uh, and we're also back with steph um steph's been in the last couple of hours steph it's great to have you back how are you doing hello hello yeah i'm all right thank you um just getting by in lockdown um trying to stay awake most of the time that's the biggest struggle um how are you doing amanda i'm okay i'm working really hard on multiple projects at the same time so doing my best and yeah it's it's crazy when you're we're in the middle of lockdown but i feel busier than ever but i don't know if that's yeah a good thing or a bad thing but we're also here with a new contributor uh simon bowie he's um based in london also writes for take one magazine simon nice to have you um tell us a little bit about um yeah your love of film what you do we'd love to know a little bit more hi yeah uh excited to be here um yeah one year in lockdown <laughs> What is time? What's what? Book <laughs> <laughs> totally. films are still coming out, um, and yeah, I've been uh, writing film reviews and getting into film criticism for the past couple of years now. Um, writing for Take One, writing for some other places, um, yeah, watching a lot of films. Yeah, absolutely, as we all are. But thank you so much for joining us, and we're looking forward to. Um, all chatting about these films today so um we have a big program today of films really exciting ones uh reviewing four films uh judas and the black messiah directed by shaka king and it's currently out online um it was um in the u.s it opened about it, it opened at the uh, sundance uh, film festival this year but then shortly thereafter uh warner brothers put it out on hbo max but now currently online as of last week um here in the uk the second film we're going to review is The Columnist, um, a Dutch film by director Ivo van Art. And the third film is Preparations to be Together for an Unknown Period of Time. Um, we're arguably one of the longer film titles ever um, by director Lily Horvat. It's a Hungarian film. And finally, we're going to review Palm Springs, which has been out for a bit in the U.S. Um, under the Hulu it, um, platform. And it also was at Sundance the year before. It's directed by Max Barbatow, but it stars Andy Samberg and produced by the Lonely Island team. So um, there's been a lot of chatter about that for the last year. So that is coming out April 9th. Um, I also, during the Glasgow Film Festival, got to chat with... Um, the director of a new film, documentary film that's been out since, I think it's the first cinematic film um, entirely in Gaelic um, uh, called Urim. Um, and and it, Boat Song is the translation of that. Scottish Gaelic is what I mean. And uh, Alistair Cole. And so I sat down with him and we are um, showcasing that on this show as well. Our March show. Stay tuned.
So we have a few announcements with Cinetopia. Um, as uh, we've been reporting that the past year, we are about to launch um, a new program of Scottish films across Scotland, touring them, um, Cinescapes. And we're finally getting there. And uh, yeah, so our first... Um, event uh, is coming up this Sunday uh, from Scotland with love um, it's and it's also in collaboration with the um, on Fife Spring Festival it's the day of happiness this weekend so um, we all should be happy it's coming spring is coming and uh, yeah so I just highly recommend checking um, if you if you go to bit.ly uh, slash Cinescapes Fife um, that's where you can get the tickets but also Stay tuned. Um, we are in the next weeks or two. We're going to announce the rest of the program. Um, you'll you'll recognize some of the the names of the films, Scottish films you might have heard of in the past um, that are quite famous, and others that maybe you hadn't. Um, but we're really really excited because we're going to be touring Scotland this year um, with Scottish films, and also doing um, extra interviews and curated content, and also discussing the locations and stuff. So. I'm really thrilled about this. It's been a real labor of love. It's not just been uh, Cinetopia. It's been um, World of Film International Film Festival and um, Edinburgh Cinema Club and Double Take Projections and all of the supporters along the way. Um, so I will, um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. But um, definitely check cinescapes.co.uk and uh, continue to look out for more updates as we can. Deputy Chairman Fred Hampton of the Illinois Black Panther Party. Repeat after me. stolen car, five years for impersonating a federal officer, or you can go home. The Black Panthers are forming a rainbow coalition of oppressed brothers and sisters of every color. Their aim is to sow hatred and inspire terror. I will learn all that I can. I will learn. These ain't no terrorists. You can murder a liberator, but you can't murder a liberation. You can murder revolutionary, but you can't murder revolution. And you can murder a freedom fighter, but you can't murder freedom. So the first film we're going to review the, to this month is Judas and the Black Messiah, directed by Sheikha King. Uh, Jim, tell us about this film. I believe you saw it at one of the film festivals last year. Uh, no, this year, yeah. I, I saw it as part of the, the Sundance Film Festival. Oh, right, um, yeah. So it showed, it showed up there shortly before it came out in the States. Sure. And then it's now, I think, in a few cinemas in the States. It's also on HBO Max. It's coming to whole bunch of rental places here um 
So the story here follows primarily Bill O'Neill, um, played by Lakeith Stanfield. And the reason we are interested in him is he was a member of the Black Panther Party in the late 1960s, um, when the Illinois chapter was under the leadership of Fred Hampton, who was infamously um, assassinated uh, by the US authorities. And basically this happened with the aid of Bill O'Neill, who is acting as an informant for the FBI. So Lakeith Sanfield plays Bill O'Neill, who is recruited by FBI agent, uh, I think it's Roy the character's name, but that's played by Jesse Plemons, who you'll know from various things, uh, probably most famously Breaking Bad and El Camino, uh, the follow-up to that. So he's recruited by Jesse Plemons to basically become a member of the Black Panther Party, ingratiate himself and provide intelligence on Fred Hampton, who is basically feared by the white supremacist, there's no other way to put it, um, authorities in the States, and is basically the black messiah of the title. Um, if you think back to another film that we reviewed on the show, actually, the MLK FBI documentary, it also, from a, a very different perspective, highlighted J. Edgar Hoover's fear of somebody who could uh, lead the black civil rights movement uh, in the United States and basically challenge the authorities and basically that is embodied in this film by Fred Hampton and the way that they are looking to to take him down basically. So basically it, it follows a pair of them, it kind of goes between the two. I think um, Keith Stanfield is definitely the lead as Bill O'Neill is primarily his story but there's a very very prominent sporting role is Daniel Kaluuya as um, Fred Hampton and also his uh, partner played by Dominique Fishback as well is also a prominent role in the film so basically it just follows that story and through to it's very you know i mean i don't think it's a spoiler it's a very tragic uh, and infamous conclusion and the impact that has on all the people involved great so what did everybody think of this film um steph i'm curious what you thought yeah i i really enjoyed this film it was something that was quite excited to see so i've been waiting for it to sort of um come over come out over here as such so it was something because we've had a few kind of really pinnacle political pieces over the last couple of years especially um with the BLM movement and such and, and like that and we have a lot of different moments in cinema that are kind of emotionally charged trying to capture um these places in history that we're just sort of beginning to navigate and revisit and I think that, you know, the one thing that kind of came to mind when I was watching this is going back to, I think, the, the Sorkin film, The Trial of the Chicago 7, and the difference between um, what I think Shaku King has done here, which is kind of immersing yourself within history instead of just retelling it and recalling it as it was. I think there's a difference in that kind of landscape of cinema. Um, I think it's one of those things when you when you recall um the Black Panthers and activists like Fred Hampton, um, you have a kind of very keyhole image into what that kind of was. You it's, it's straight from the history textbooks into 
um, what's kind of fed through different political channels. And I think what is done so well in this film is that you get to see all these dimensions of um, Fred's character and the people around him that sort of incorporated and brought this movement to the revolutionary standpoint that it was during the the 60s. So I think it's it's a very good character-driven film. I think that... I think the performances as well, when you have people, um, um, when you have people like Daniel Kaluuya and stuff, and you, and um, and Jesse Plemons as well, Plemons as well, you you expect you already know there's going to be quite a dy- dynamic force in the cast, and and they're they're definitely very much powerhouse actors that are very dynamic on screen. So you've already got, um, you've already got something to make a very intriguing character-driven film, especially when you. I think it does kind of test that the boundaries of, you know, especially with the character of O'Neill, what you can, almost what you can lose in the way that you kind of, if you, the way that you kind of try and save yourself through these these ways, the way that um, O'Neill wants to, uh, is sort of a, a two-bit crook who has the chance to kind of um, get rid of his sentence that he's facing if he works as an informant and how that kind of, the self-serving aspects of this character become kind of kind of become changed the more he's he becomes a part of this um the Black Panther party and the more that you know he sees the very human side to the to the um political stances that they're taking and how that distorts. I don't think it's a lot of thing it's not a lot of um when you're talking about kind of activist cinema as going back to the you know Sorkin's the trial of the Chicago Seven again is very it's very um there's a very clear line between sort of rec- kind of recalling and retelling the stories that everyone knows before and then there's different between difference between getting really immersed into the people that were behind you know these news podcasts these these um these um, moments that make up um current history and that are still having a massive impact today uh, yeah i really really liked it um it's a very strong film driven by these terrific performances of the two uh, lead actors or lead and supporting really driven by this contrast between the 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 calm charismatic statesmanlike uh, Fred Hampton played by Kaluuya and the more twitchy hot-headed Stanfield and that contrast between these two figures uh, really drove the film for me and um, and to sort of echo what Steph said I I just I was most struck by how remarkable it is that this film exists as a big budget studio Hollywood film um that talks about the socialist and communist foundations of the Black Panther Party and those explicitly political aims um as well as getting into the, the 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 film's explicit criticism of the role of the police um, as a sort of repressive state apparatus, the role of the FBI in uh, in suppressing, attempting to suppress the Black Panther Party and and the civil rights movement uh, more generally, and it's just it's remarkable to see that kind of political engagement in in a studio film like this. That's that's a hot contender for you know awards season. Yeah, I I really like this. Um, it was interesting is I had a slightly different reaction to it on first and second viewing. I think um, I, I'll I'll talk about those differences in a minute. But I think that the thing that really stands out for me and the thing that really hooks you in from 
the start is the power of Daniel Kaluuya's performance. Um, he really is, he really is quite something in this role. Um, the the kind of the power and the charisma he brings to, particularly when Hampton is addressing groups of people, is quite remarkable. Um, and it has that same sort of intensity that, to, to me, it, it, it had the same sort of intensity to it that. Um, Another role of his, which which curiously I don't think at the time I remember him getting a huge amount of plaudits for, was actually uh, Widows, uh, Steve McQueen's film, where he had a supporting role there, and actually kind of re- the intensity of the performance kind of reminded me a lot of that. Um, I think Lakeith Stanfield is also excellent. He's another one of these actors where I he's consistently taking, to me anyway, very interesting roles. Uh, the one that springs to mind for me most when I'm saying that is probably Sorry sorry to Bother You, which was one of my favourite films of that year that that came out. Um, but even kind of like the lighter roles he t- he's taken in things like, you know, Knives Out and things like that. He, he's a he's a very engaging a very engaging presence. One that I want to talk about a bit more and I think this, this is one of the things that stood out to me, particularly on the second viewing, is uh, Dominique Fishback's supporting role. And I actually think it is a crucial role because it balances the presentation of uh, Hampton and it basically kind of, I don't want to say humanizes, right? Because it's not that he's kind of like this um, iconic figure in other scenes. Like he has given other opportunities to interact with people on a, on a human level, but it's more the idea that it kind of hammers home the idea that this was just a guy and if there's anything that's lost in the film, it's maybe how young these guys were, right? Because it comes up at the end of the film that Hampton, at the time that we're seeing a lot of this, he was 21 years old. I mean, we're talking about a very a very young man. Um, but that's what he was. He was a man. Uh, you know, he had hopes, he had aspirations, he had, personal, he had a personal life. And I think that's something which that role, uh, and it, it, that role existing, uh, brings to the fore in the film. But I think the chemistry and the real connection that Dominique Fishback develops in that role makes that pretty crucial. I do have some small criticisms of the film, though, and this maybe came through more on second viewing. What I will say is when Daniel Kaluuya is not on screen, he loses a bit of energy for me. Um, I think there are a number of segments that don't... They don't, for me, move particularly organically. Um, You know, there are certain things around other members of that local chapter um that there are certain there are certain elements around other members of that local chapter that i think occasionally lag a little bit and i think they could have been tightened up a bit the film is just over two hours long i think it probably could have moved at a slightly brisker pace at points um and i think you feel that more when daniel kaluuya is not on screen um, it's a minor criticism because I do think it is an extremely powerful piece of filmmaking and I think the actual filmmaking as well adds to that. But if I had anything that I would criticize about the film, I think I would say that. So yeah, I just I actually wanted to pick back up where Simon says that, you know, this is really truly uh, you know, a Hollywood film, at least the way it feels when you're, you know, when the the budget, the you know, the the amount of production value and, you know, the way the film has is clearly um, you know, produced 
Um, but it is an, it's an incredible Hollywood film. And I think we do spend a lot of time with art house films and international, you know, like films from all over and, and which we love uh, documentaries. But this is one of the better. I'm a big fan of Hollywood films when they're done well. And I think this is one of the better ones I've seen in a really long time. And um, it got me very excited to I mean, I certainly watched some things about, you know, you mentioned Jim MLK FBI. And I think there there are some really important similarities, obviously, with this, the, the what happened and, and uh, the way that F, the FBI was 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 dealing with um, the civil rights movement. But I, you know, it obviously got me really interested into reading and learning more about um, the, the, you know, the true life story. And there's actually a really fascinating podcast that is associated with the film. And it's the first time I've actually seen, and I'm sure maybe a lot of people have been watching this, but, you know, a film is actually running a podcast that kind of goes for the details of, um, of, you know, of the, of the actual true story and the making of. And I think it was really fascinating to learn how involved um, Fred Hampton Jr., now the chairman of the Black Panthers Party, or Cubs, is, was involved, as well as Deborah. Uh, I think she, her name is now Akua Jerry, but the, you know, the Deborah character was in the whole process. So supposedly this story has been pitched to them for years and years and years, and that they um, finally kind of felt comfortable with this production team to bring that story together. The reason why I bring that up is because it's very clear that uh, they were on set all the time and they were very adamant about having the story being told in a certain way that was respectful to the Black Party Pan, the, the Black Party, the Black Panther Party, apologies, um, you know, and chapter in Illinois and how it actually, how they should have been represented accurately. Um, so it might have something to do with the way in which, um, you know, the the way that, the like you were saying, um, a Hollywood film was kind of discussing the political, the communist and the social sort of ties um, because there was, a, you know, there, there was a real dialogue between the actual, the people who experienced the, you know, experienced uh, the real life situation and, you know, and the filmmakers. Yeah, I think the way the film represents the FBI as as kind of endemically, structurally racist and white supremacist was really powerful. I think it did come at times, it skirted a little close to um, blaming an individual. J. Edgar Hoover is portrayed in the film. Uh, Martin Sheen plays J. Edgar Hoover. And it skirts a little close to portraying him as a kind of villain from which the rot seeps into the FBI. There's one particular scene with him and uh, between Sheen and Plemons that I felt came close to doing that, but it doesn't really get into that too much. It's it it shows the FBI and the police as as structurally white supremacist, um, particularly Hoover's FBI, and I think that's testament to the the confidence of the directing and the 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 focus of the film, um, and like you say, the work with. Uh, Fred Hampton Jr. and and Fred Hampton's family. It's um, it's interesting actually. You talking about that that scene, Simon? Actually, because without giving too much away, right? I mean, I think we can probably we could like it, it's a scene where J. Edgar Hoover is enormously racist, right? <laughs> Amongst many other scenes where J. Edgar Hoover is enormously racist. I think what 
I think what that scene does, and I think this is something the film does extremely well in terms of um, Jesse Plemons' character and his interaction with other members of the FBI, and even in some of the dialogue that he says to um, the Bill O'Neill character, is racism comes in different flavors basically right you have the kind of the overt bigotry that j edgar hoover displays in this film but then you've got that slight that in some ways just as bad version that is displayed by jesse plemons's character where you can tell he is uncomfortable with what hoover is saying but at the same time he is all too happy to avail himself of the benefits of him being a white member of that organization and it's not so much that he is with the odd exception here and there which is obviously without without using slurs is racist it's more the case that he acquiesces to that behavior he is quite happy for it to continue he is quite happy to take the advantages that he gains from it and he is quite happy to keep people in the position that bill o'neill is because i think what's important about the bill o'neill character is I don't think he comes out as a particularly um, a particularly likable character, um, and I think his treachery, for want of a better word, is shown to be that. But I think what's important about it is he is shown to be a little conflicted at points, and it's not so much that he is solely trying to advance himself, although that's obviously something that comes through in the film. It does go to lengths to point to show the oppressive structures that he is working within. Um, you know, it's more so that the the organisations in the film, represented by Jesse Plemons, they basically have their they basically have they're hovering over him, and he can't do anything differently. So it, it, I I also think that's why Lakeith Stanfield's performance is as good as it is because he's balancing a lot of different things there. Um, but I think the film does that extremely well. Yeah, I agree. I think I think in that that. That um, Lakeith Stanfield uh, role, I, I you know I I did think he did a, an, an excellent job, and as you say, it's not necessarily a um, you know a, a positive you know portrayal of the real life character, but also you could see his his torment about you know um, about the situation occasionally, or or how he's kind of gotten himself into it. I do have to say, Martin Sheen's makeup. Did anyone feel that that was just a bit like too yeah, much? Yeah, it was. It was so distracting. He's got <laughs> extensive yeah. prosthetics, and yeah, I couldn't quite take it seriously. <laughs> this is that what I mean be... by it coming close to portraying him as sort of cartoonishly villainous. Yeah, because he looks like a cartoon. Yeah, I did find myself wondering, why did you put Martin Sheen in that role? You know, you could have picked somebody who looked vaguely more like Hoover. I mean, he's in it for all of about, like, I think it's maybe, like, is it... Th- I think he's only in, in it, like, three times, and, like, two of them are actually kind of, like, cuts across basically what is the same scene in, like, a lecture hall or something. Yeah. I, I I don't know. That, that, but, no, I agree. That was a bit distracting. And it's, like, that the first cool. scene, and I'm just like, mm, you know, if... <laughs> If if that costume person, or I mean makeup person, gets nominated, I <laughs> might definitely vote no. Um, but yeah, no, I mean fantastic, fantastic film. Um, I, I look forward to seeing it again as well. But yes, uh, so Judas and the Black Messiah available online everywhere. Just type it into Google, you'll find it. All 
right. So the next film we're going to review is The Columnist, um, directed by Ivo Van Art. And Steph, why don't you give us a little bit of uh, an overview on what this film's about? Yep. Um, so The Columnist is um, about a, a columnist and author um, called Femme Kaboot, which is play- who is played by Katja, <clears throat> Katja Herbers. Um, and it's pretty much the story of a woman who is has her own opinion column within certain news press and is receiving a lot of hate mail and comments about uh, pretty much um it's implied that she's quite a feminist writer quite liberal and lefty and um she's getting quite a lot of kind of misogynistic abuse from internet trolls which are these men that she seems to try and um she seems to try and find out who they are as the, as the film goes on and tries to um, break through that internet anon- anonymity and, and things like that. So you have so you have her, her story pretty much um, revolving around this controversial um, um, fight between her, um, her column being under attack online by all these people who disagree with it politically and the, the question of, um, I think that we... The, the, the age-old question of can people have different political opinions without it um, unfolding into aggression and, and hate and then, and then amongst that she's she's also an author so she's trying to focus on a new project in her life but she can't sort of distance herself from the the kind of criticism and hate that she receives in the backdrop so it's that kind of it, it's sort of a, a story about censorship and how far can you go with um, free speech until it borders on something else entirely um, and it's it's a very enigmatic tale of how far the internet can break you and how far and to what lengths it can ruin you and, and, and what lengths that you can allow it to so um, I'm wondering what everyone thought of this film because it was certainly something um, I've not seen before so I was wondering what everyone um, made of it. Well, I'll go with the very um, unsophisticated review here, and I, I, I like I like to pick on Jim because I just first give Jim credit because he 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 does the lion's share of choosing the films and sort of organizing this podcast. But sometimes once a year, I'm just like, what the heck, Jim? <laughs> and I would have to say, like twenty minutes into this film. And, you know, spoiler alert, you know, like a columnist, uh, you know, murders somebody and, you know, chops a finger off. And I was just like, I, I mean, yeah, the, my neighbors heard me scream and I didn't I didn't know what to expect. Um, but really catchy and absolutely like farcical. I don't know if I hated it. I just don't even know what I think about it. It's a, it's it, it's not the funniest film I've ever seen, nor is it the best <laughs> horror film. So it's a really hard place to define this. And um, you know, I'm I'm happy I've seen it. Um, but but I have a big question mark. So that that's that's my my you know my 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 initial review. And I'd love to hear what everybody else thinks too. Uh, it it didn't click with me at all. I I just couldn't get into it. I I didn't think it was funny as a comedy. I didn't find the horror particularly horrific. Um, but I, I'm not averse to these kinds of broad horror comedies. I like 
in the same vein, I like Alice Lowe's Prevenge, I like Ben Wheatley's Sightseers, which have sort of similar premises um, of someone doing a load of murders. Um, but this one I just couldn't... The, the barrier, I think, between enjoying the kind of horror comedy of it and uh, me enjoying it, the barrier between me enjoying it and the sort of horror comedy, the barrier was I didn't understand what it was trying to say about free speech or online behavior. Uh, there's a line that's repeated at the start and the end of the film, which is, why can't we just have different opinions and be nice about it? Which I think is a fairly reductive message anyway. But then it's coming from from this mass murderer. So I don't know whether that's what the <laughs> film wants to say or not. I don't know when it's being ironic or when it's being sincere. And I found that kind of political muddling uh, confusing and alienating. I so I'll be interested to see how this discussion develops, right? Because I I had some fun with this, and I emphasise some, right? <laughs> um, I think um, Katja Herber's as Femke, I think is is really quite engaging, and I think she's really good. I think she she toes that kind of black comedy line quite well. Uh, I'm glad Simon brought up um, some of the stuff that. Um, reference Alice Lowe and like some of Ben Wheatley's things because Sightseers is actually kind of what in terms of tone that's kind of what it it felt like to me. Now I didn't I didn't get along spectacularly well with Sightseers, but it's a it's a film I appreciate. Um, I think I think what Simon said there is basically my main issue with it because there is a certain amount that you know in black comedy is kind of my it's kind of my thing, right? It it it's something that I get along with very well. So on that level, um, the idea of kind of like basically just kind of like social media revenge fantasy, almost like you know, like trolls online or something, it it, it does very well with that. I quite like this idea of that being extrapolated to these absurd proportions. I think where it where it slips up, and it perhaps makes it a less memorable film as a result, is something I agree with Simon on, which is I don't really know what he wants to say. It's a very muddled. It is a very muddled approach to what what it's wanting to to get across, right? Because it introduces quite late on, I think, this double standard between you know, because it, it talks about free speech a lot, and there's the subplot with the daughter at school, which I don't think is, to me anyway, is blended particularly well in with the main the main narrative, right? But there is a certain irony to her, quite literally silencing people who are uh, trolling her and there's a certain catharsis to her doing that but and maybe this is just because of my reaction to the British press or something I don't know like this is probably my own personal biases coming in I don't think the film does a lot to balance kind of what the power is in these roles um you know and like who leads discussions and why um, you know, and when I have some of the feelings that I do about the British press, I understand the film is set in the Netherlands, but when I have some of the feelings I do about the British press, it's kind of hard for me to muster up that much sympathy for the idea of people taking to task over their views. And it doesn't examine what we're actually talking about here. I think that the column that she's written that attracts all this uh, hate in the film is one that she's written about, I think it's Black Pete, 
And basically, it's also some sort of tradition where people in uh, the Netherlands dress up in blackface, and it's you know it, it it looks horrendously offensive, right? And basically, it's she's attracting ire for this, but it never really goes into it. It never really, for me, goes into what she wrote about. It's more the reaction uh, to it. So it's just when you balance all these things, like what she wrote about her reaction to it, the the breadth of responses she gets in person to people she confronts. I don't really know what the film's trying to say. Like it's it, it's vaguely amusing. It's got a nice gory catharsis to it, but I don't know what it's trying to say. I don't I I don't know if it knows what it's trying to say. But more importantly, I get the feeling that it does want to have a voice on something. It wants to have a voice on some sort of freedom of speech issue, but I don't think it's a particularly coherent one. So whilst the film kind of works during its runtime, I, it's not going to stay in my mind because I don't really know what he was trying to say with any of this. I mean, my, the the most simple thing to me is trying to say is obviously people hide behind their, their Twitter, you know, rants or something like that. And, um, you know, I, I guess that would, that was the impression I got with the first, the first situation, you know, with the guy, because I, I know what you're talking about, that, that, the the column that he wrote and then he for that person to come out in that blackface it was incredibly offensive you know um like a, a scene um for somebody who doesn't understand that tradition i mean I, I knew a little bit about that tradition um but uh that he was so you know unwilling to you know to be as as rude as he was on you know on the uh on the twitter sphere but uh but it, i just don't I, I don't think, I think it goes back to what Simon said, it wasn't that funny, you know, so perhaps if it was kind of used in a certain way in which it, 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 it actually became funny that she murdered these people, uh, it might, might have worked a little better, you know, like, so I may mean, kind of get it, what she's, what, what the, what the film's about, but I just didn't think it came together. Steph, what do you think? Yeah, um. I think to to go back to you know discussion about its place in black comedy and I, I think when you go into when you're making a film like this and you're trying to balance the the buoyancy of um black comedy with absurdism it usually goes really quite well but the reason it usually sinks it, it usually marries quite well as a combination is that even though the film itself is absurd the messages at at the core are very rational and very almost on the nose. It balances that kind of aesthetic, um, that aesthetic kind of mystery to the universe with something quite like, why is this so complicated? This film seems to complicate everything round the edges, which could have been a, a lot more sincere. I, I also, I think what Simon was saying, it's not like... <laughs> You know, I'm not. It's not easy to not make me laugh. I find pretty much everything funny. I'm really quite an easy person <laughs> to with comedy. So, you know, I and I was struggling, struggling with this. I think the the whole it's not, thing. It's not going to be the poster that one. I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's <laughs> it's it's what it was. You know what? I did have some fun with it. I think that the whole. I think the whole kind of cathartic thing about her taking revenge and all the the trolls online was, you know, it was a bit like, oh yeah, I suppose that's a lot of people's fantasy. Pers- per- 
um, especially people that have quite a big political platform online where they kind of are exposed to constant um, criticism and abuse, you know, I think that, that that'll maybe resonate more with people in, in that position than it will to the, the average person that uses um, online in a very minimal, and the web in a very minimal way, especially on social media accounts and as such, but the the whole premise of kind of you've got this this whole issue of censorship where she, she almost feels like her column's been censored in a way because it's been shut down by these troll troll accounts online and then for her to kind of go out then and murder the trolls to stop them commenting on her on her column I mean I don't know if it was trying to be just sort of I don't know if it was trying to be I don't know if that was the point in the film to sort of say yeah, there's no way really around free speech and the limitations, you know, if you don't put limitations on it, it'll spread out of control and, and it'll, and how far um, is free speech really ever going to be successful? How far can it, it's not the utopia that we would think it is. And, but I don't really, <laughs> I don't really underst- understand if you're going to make a film centering around that political debate it needs to be somewhat political it really was just about a woman that was really angry on her computer being unable to work because people were calling her a cow online and I know that's not you know that that can't be great but there needs to be a bit more depth into what these issues are to make a film like that about them because I think that it wasn't something that connects to the levels it was supposed to be talking about um was a bit of a miss for me, to be honest. There's some bits that I did like about it. I think that it is quite fun in the kind of slightly horror gore um, sector. There's a, I think the performances are really good, but I think the script was a bit of a letdown, um, to be honest. Uh, you know, one thing that when you guys were mentioning that in, certain, in some... It kind of reminds me of a couple films. I think we didn't review it, but Woman at War, this Icelandic film that that was about um, a woman kind of taking revenge about, you know, she's an environmental activist and sort of, and, and, and it's a funny film about kind of, you know, taking, you know, and protesting in a very dramatic way. And I, I think that actually it's not one of my favorite films, but it is a film that uses comedy and has a message and is talking about kind of like, you know, political activism even the county i think was another icelandic film and it was around like the the frustrate i believe that was the film and correct me if i'm wrong but again around this frustration about social media and the impact that that has you know like um for someone who's trying to manage uh yeah or just have a normal life and 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 whatnot um but all of those were done with like subtlety and stuff and yet i agree the performance of the main character was good it's just, I just couldn't buy that she would go do that, you know? And that's the problem for me. I think um, the one thing that I want to pick on that basically that, that Steph said there, which I think gets to the heart of the bits of the film that do and I think it's fair to say, Judge about what we're saying, I think I, I, think I enjoyed it in the moment more than uh, everybody else here. But what I will say is, I don't think it, something that Steph said was in a way that, in a way, it kind of avoids politics a little bit. Um, and it sounds like a, a strange thing to be saying about this film, but it doesn't really engage with. It doesn't really engage with what it is that she's talking about in the in the column. It doesn't engage particularly well with what the views are of any of the people that she is going and murdering. And the thing is, 
it kind of wants to have a political point. I mean, it wouldn't bring up this blackface idea at the start if it wasn't wanting to make a point around that. It wouldn't be dealing with it being a newspaper columnist if it wasn't. You wouldn't have this subplot with the daughter and notions of free speech flying around if it didn't want to, maybe not necessarily make a point, but engage with these points. But I don't think it does it particularly well. In some ways, if you were to strip this back uh, to take kind of the headier ideas of free speech and some of the, these other things that are flying around, if you were to strip them out, I actually think it would be a more effective film. It, it, it might not make as many points as the makers wanted to, but I don't think it does that anyway. But the thing is, if it went up for just a straight kind of like black comedy social media revenge thing and kind of strip some of that stuff back i think it would be a leaner film but it would also probably achieve it would achieve that black comedy aspect of it a little bit more effectively i think it's when it starts to layer in ideas to this that's the stuff that it's not doing effectively and i think you can see that in the performances you know we, we said that about um you know, uh, a Herbers in particular. I think the performances are all really good, but the the way in which they are good is on that black comedy kind of a absurdist level that we've spoken about in terms of how she goes about murdering these people. It's nothing to do with the, the loftier ideas which are in there in the script. I just don't think it does them very well. I agree. I think there's a good contemporary satire to be made around the online Twitter trolls, this kind of social media discourse. I just don't think this was it. And yep. to to pick up on something you said earlier, Jim, I think I came away thinking there's context I'm missing. Maybe there's Dutch context around this discussion of free speech in the Netherlands that I'm missing. But certainly in a British context, I'm thinking of columnists who uh, use their columns to justify transphobia and, and talk about different kinds of issues in, but that's in that's exactly the, like I, to me i was seeing very little difference between some of the stuff that femme kaboot was saying the likes of like you know suzanne moore or someone like that yeah, like exactly, that, that, these yeah. are the people i was drawing parallels with and i that's probably unfair right but that's me bringing a kind of a british my own particular british context to it but that's what i was getting at earlier and said like it doesn't examine kind of like yeah, the relative level of the influence here of um so i i so i agree with you it's maybe not even that it's got context that either of us were lacking is maybe just the reception is different i think it, it's also it also it's not clear how it wants to portray femke um because there is this this column at the start where she's complaining about black pete uh, and blackface quite rightly the other columns we see are like i really like hard-boiled eggs and <laughs> i really like soup yeah, yeah. which are, are not the kind of you know political leftist uh yeah, it's kind of one Diatribe, one one step but... up from I like lamp. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but wasn't she trying to get into that realm? Wasn't that kind of the part of the point? Is that uh, wasn't uh, like her publicist or something like or her something had said? Like, did I miss that? Where she, that was like they they like your column because it's like about soup, but they don't necessarily want to hear that. Wasn't that a yeah, line around true. that? Yeah, that's there true. was something. There was something confusing as well about the publicist because there was like some undertone about the publicist wanting there to be a controversy, and then the publicist not wanting any political engagement. So I was a bit lost, to be honest with that. Um, I think that the whole dynamic with you know the strange publisher, her columns about tea, and her 
you know, dismembering people's hands could have actually been a really fun flick <laughs> had it just been kept very simple. But when you just yeah, throw yeah. political jargon up in the air and then never address any of it, you just don't know what you're watching anymore. So I think if they just kept it as unpolitical as possible, um, it would have been fine. Or if it was going to be political, I think it would have had to be a completely different film. I really did, yeah. like, the bike scene as well. I just have to add that. I, I, is it this, would you call it Steven? I don't know. It's just, I, I, he, the, that was great, great as well. There were elements to this that were good. Yeah, Stephen, Stephen, yeah, Stephen, uh, Stephen dude, um, do it like desperately racing to a location yeah. on a bike because it's an intensely Dutch scene. It's so, it's so Dutch and it's so scared of them every yeah. time I've gone to Amsterdam, like they're gonna, they're gonna, you know, knock me over. Um, it was really, really well, it was effective. It was scary. That was, a, that was horror. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> anyway, um, the columnist is available online. And, um, you know, if you're, if you want to hear, uh, if you want to see what we're all talking about, please check it out. So the next film we're going to review is Preparations to Be Together for an Unknown Period of Time, directed by Lily Horvat. And I have to write that down because I would never remember that. But Simon, tell us a little bit about this film. Uh, yeah, Preparations to Be Together for an Unknown Period of Time. Um, it follows Marta, uh, who is a talented neurosurgeon uh, who's been working in New Jersey in America. At the start of the film, she's arriving in Budapest um, because she's left her job in New Jersey and moved over to Budapest to be with this man that she met at a neurosurgery conference. But when she arrives in Budapest, she goes to the, the hospital where this man works. She attempts to make contact with him and he doesn't know her. He says, I don't know who you are. We've never met before. What are you doing here? And essentially the film follows that struggle between her remembering this man, her moving, uprooting her entire life to be with this man, and the man not recognising her, not knowing who she is. Uh, so there's sort of hints of Kafka to the, the story and the tone, this sense that something is off, something's gone wrong, there's no clear indication as to how or why. Um, and this is the question that drives the film. Um, this is the ambiguity sort of at the heart of it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, apart from the fact that it reminded me so much of the time, I, I actually got to spend about, about a month over a course of a year in Budapest. Um, how beautiful Budapest is. Uh, what does everybody think about this film? If I was trying to describe this film to anyone, I'd sum it up in the sense that it's a film that after 10 minutes you think you've sort of got it figured out and then you, as you reach the halfway point you realise that you've got it completely wrong and then it gets round that way until till the end, until it kind of there's a summary for you, it kind of um, it clears everything up for you, but you go around all these kind of corners with it, not really knowing what, um, not really knowing where you are with the characters in it it's, it's a very much like a, a subtle mood piece, it's very emotionally driven 
and the way that it composes the narrative. You, you spend a lot of a lot of the film the gaze of you know the central character Doctor Martra, and you and most of the time you never you're never really sure how reliable a narrator um, Martha is. You have this mysterious allure of the film in many ways that kind of functions from the contradictions in character versus action. Because at many t- many points when you follow kind of Martha's behaviour, which can manifest into quite disturbing behaviour, almost kind of obsessive and stalkerish, and you almost expect the narrative and the mood to flip in ways that it never really does. It's very clever how the film operates in this way. When what you see never conforms to the kind of preconceived semiotics that are attached to the different areas of this this film. In particular, the film kind of uses um, Marta's kind of cool blue eyes as the focal visual aid in the film, because as she's recalling all her experiences to her therapist, etc., you you have this this close up of Marta's eyes, and I think when you have kind of to me when I when you see a lot of consistent close ups and and. I mean, it's um, fixated on, on someone's eyes. It kind of, it kind of traces a lot back to old horror cinema and and horror culture. So you almost get kind of a sinister. You almost feel a sinister element with this character. Without, I think, just f- from tracing that kind of that nostalgia back in your mind about where you've seen these shots before. So it very much kind of derives this mystery from the aesthetics that is lit within it, but kind of leaves the script open until the climax. I think I think it's an incredibly interesting film, I thought. The more you go back and think about it, the more you remember parts of it you think that you might have missed, but have almost kind of unconsciously retained in the back of your mind. And I think for me it's one that it's one that I want to revisit quite soon because I think that there's more to it than can be that can be digested within the first watch. I think there's much more that you will take from it from each viewing. I think it's it's one of those films I think that will function differently, and and each time you see it, I, I I really I really enjoyed it to be honest. Yeah, I'd um I'd agree with all that. I think uh, one of the main things I enjoyed about this film is really trying trying to figure out what the relationship is between these characters. It kind of and I think I, I think Steph summed up pretty well um at the start when she said that, like you you think you've got a handle on it. And what's going on, and then it shifts, but it doesn't. I wouldn't say it's sort of like, I wouldn't say it flips completely. It's more just it is a very twisty film in that your understanding of people's interactions and even kind of what they're thinking switches um, subtly over time. And I think the um, the main driver of that is uh, Natasha Stork. Um, in that that lead role, she's balancing, I think, very well this ability to be to appear quite vulnerable, and you can see emotions on her face, whilst also being fairly inscrutable. Um, you know, it's it's kind of hard. It's it's very easy, rather, to to believe that the people within the narrative and within the story find her a little bit hard to figure out, but we, as the audience can kind of see the emotional beats that she's hitting as she, you know, is told, like, you know, as the the guy says that he doesn't know her, and then kind of like these reactions that she gets about, like, you're moving back from the States to here, why are you doing that? And nobody really being able to understand the motivations. I think the way the camera lingers on certain images helps with that. Um, there's a big thing about it. So the opening of the film is basically her 
going to the Liberty Bridge in Budapest, and I'm going to congratulate Simon on his excellent Hungarian pronunciation there. I am not going to try and do it, because if I try and pronounce it the proper way, then I sound like Sean Connery after he's had a few drinks, <laughs> right? So I'm not going to do that. Um, but basically, the film opens with this um, her looking to meet this guy at the bridge in, in Budapest. The flat that she eventually um, rents like shortly afterwards, early on in the film, has a view of the bridge, and it's just it, it, you get the sense of the the kind of the the central the central way that this entire endeavor and this uh, pursuit in her head is it, is occupying, and quite how central it is to her motivations and everything that it, she is doing. Um, the way that the relationships turn after that, I find very interesting, and I think one of the pleasures of this film is actually trying to figure that out. I I, I have no doubt that it could probably frustrate some people um like you know it, it is quite opaque in that sense but for me the way that it is approached um visually in terms of framing that central performance makes it a very engaging film to watch for me yeah the the first note i i wrote down was this makes me really want to go to budapest again because <laughs> <laughs> it, it it depicts the city beautifully um and i and i think the city is central to to what the the film wants to say about about sort of dualism about um, dividing into two because at the center of the the narrative are these two inconsistent interpretations of the world you know one where Marta knows this man and one where this man does not know Marta um, and I think that emphasis on dualism really comes through in the first hour of the film uh, Janosch the man even writes writes a book on the philosophy of neurosurgery, you know, is, is, is the mind in the matter of the brain or is the mind an abstract immaterial presence? And I thought the first hour of the film was terrific at drawing that out and, and drawing on this ambiguity and this tension that uh, Jim and Steph have both mentioned. I think after that, I think the last uh, act of the film, it falls apart a bit in its effort to get to a resolution I would have liked more ambiguity, you know. I I liked not knowing what was going on, um, and in rushing to get to uh, to explain what's going on, I, I was I was disappointed by the end. I think. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't know. I I agree, and I liked that point that you said about uh, Budapest and 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 the parallels. I mean, the Buddha and the pastor or whatever. But I I mm-hmm. I, I totally. Um, I, I totally did was captivated by this film and I think it and you know in, in like a I don't know if you call it Gen Y or Gen Z kind of gaslighting word or whatever it's just the the idea of memory and you know what happens in relationships and how we perceive certain situations and how we second guess ourselves through you know through life's changes or through you know decisions and um, I think the the primary character is uh, was an, it was an incredible thing I was captivated through the whole thing and then I did really get into the romance I really got into the you know d- to uh, you know the, the the ambiguity that was going on I, I don't know if it ended like you said I don't know if it for me I don't know if it ended on the best note um, mm. but as Steph originally mentioned the fact that we're, we're twisting and turning and trying to figure out um a very complicated character, but a character that keeps you interested through that whole process, and that, you know that we keep learning more. I think that's a really, um, it's a, it was a really fascinating aspect to this story and this this film. 
yeah, I'd be keen to see it again because it was it was really intriguing, um, and that that central performance is terrifically captivating. I think I'm going to revisit as well. I think it's one of those films that you will get something new each time you leave it after the experience. I think that mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not incredibly convinced that what I take away from it now will be fixed after. I think when I watch it again, it may completely alter. And I, I quite like that about it. I think it's quite flexible in the way that you can receive it and you can take things from it. I think it makes it quite an open piece of cinema to kind of take what you need from it and leave leave things where it be. So yeah, I would definitely recommend if if people that, you know people that like kind of um, mood based cinema and things that are quite subtly mysterious and character driven. It's it's definitely one to watch out for. It's a very unique piece of cinema, I would say. Great. And so Jim, can you remind us when that film is coming out on? Um online on vod uh that will be coming out via curzon home cinema on the 19th of march yeah yep okay so definitely check it out it's pretty much a unanimous agreement that we like that film it's gonna be a beautiful wedding Here you are, standing on the precipice of something so much bigger than anyone here. But always remember, you are not alone. I don't think that we met. I'm Sarah. Niles. Hi. Hi. Good day so far? Today, tomorrow, it's all the same. You! What is going on? Hey, get out of the water! Guess you followed me. It's one of those infinite time loop situations you might have heard about. That I might have heard about? Yeah. Uh, So the final film we're going to review uh, this month is Palm Springs. Um, And uh, Jim, why don't you tell us a little bit about this film? So yes, Palm Springs. Um, so our lead here is Andy Samberg, and he is playing Niles, who is a guest at a wedding. Uh, and we very quickly learn that basically we've got a bit of a, a Groundhog Day situation here. And he has been living the day of this wedding, at which he's a guest. He's there with his uh, his girlfriend over and over. Um, and obviously that has taken a bit of a toll on him, but... He's been living this day again and again, and basically he starts to form an attachment with Sarah, played by Kristen Milioti. And quite early on, basically through some sort of, you know, supernatural um, event, she also starts to begin experiencing this day over and over. And similar to kind of other films that have used this sort of concept before, basically the if they go to sleep or if they die at any point during this period they will wake up again and start the day completely anew um there's various people in supporting roles i think the most notable supporting role is probably going to be um jk simmons uh, as another character who's actually stuck in this this loop as well um and basically it follows it, it just follows that these two developing a bond living this day over and over kind of the 
emotional effect this has on them and how they then look and reflect upon their lives and where they go from there. Um, I think I, I'll leave it that. The, the setup is kind of simple and I think it's probably best to kind of like let it play out and you get to know the characters in the film. But basically that that is the premise. It's one that will be familiar to anybody who has watched Groundhog Day. I think it's the most obvious touchstone. Um, but... I think the way it goes about presenting the characters is quite interesting um, and the way that it differs from films that have done similar things. I got a lot out of it, but I'm interested to see what other folk uh, thought about it. I mean, I would just like to ask, because my own film knowledge about this, apart from Groundhog Day, this idea, um, which, I mean, I really love Groundhog Day. Um, and I, you know, I thought that was a really unique concept. And if there was a film before that came, I didn't know. Uh, you know, that would have been because of my, you know, knowledge, not like my lack of knowledge about film history at the time when seeing it. But supposedly there's been a couple films since then, apart from this, that, um, you know, has used this concept. To me, it seems that's become like this trope. And I, in a weird way, I wondered if there could have been a nod to that in some capacity, because I just didn't, you know, like it, it seems it seems so uniquely one film and yet we're now kind of running with it. Like, oh yeah, you've seen Groundhog Day, so you get it. Um, I I guess from an overall concept that that kind of annoyed me a bit, but otherwise I, I always, I, I really like Andy Samberg. I've, I'm, I've always been obsessed with SNL and Lonely Island and stuff like that. So I, I've enjoyed those over the years. So it was it funny. Yeah, it was quite, it was quite cute and it was nice. And it was like having these two, you know, these two people dealing with that situation. Um, it was nice to go back to that idea of the everyday because I've seen Groundhog Day enough. Um, but I guess that, that would be my overall impression is that it's definitely taking on an idea from another film, but maybe not commenting enough on that. I don't know. I don't know what you guys think. To pick up on that tradition, um, I think I'd go so far to say we're in a golden age for, for time loop stories, <laughs> for time loop narratives. Yeah. Um, we've got... TV shows like Russian Doll, uh, films like Happy Death Day, Edge of Tomorrow, and in video games, um, we've got Outer Wilds, Death Loop is coming out soon, Minute. These are all time loop stories that have come out in the past few years. Um, and I think Palm Springs is a really interesting sort of self-aware uh, addition to that tradition. Um, I think it, it knows enough about... it. it assume, the film... Uh, knows that the audience knows what the deal is with time loops. That it doesn't have to explain it too much. It, it's it can rely on these previous films. It can rely on Groundhog Day and say, "You get the idea. We're stuck doing the same day again. This time it's at a wedding. This time it's going to be a romantic comedy." Um, and I thought that worked really well. I, I think it had a really good cohesion of 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 theme with with that narrative conceit, with that time loop conceit. I I do kind of I agree with Amanda on the kind of Groundhog Day-esque film gimmick getting a bit it, bit, a bit old hat I think that the one I think the the more redeemable aspect of Palm Springs is that unlike you know films like Happy Death Day and the sequel I think which was only out last year um, is a very on the nose on the nose reference to Groundhog Day it's very much Here's Groundhog Day, but we're gonna genre flip it and make it, you know, 
it still has its own spin on it. Not not don't get me wrong, but with this one, the kind of the time loop thing kind of edges a bit more into the background as the story develops and things become more into the focus. Where I think I another film that kind of played on the the time loop um saga um in modern film. I don't know if anyone's seen the film um Triangle that was out. I don't know if it was near 2010 I'm, I can't really remember oh, yeah, yeah. Um, that was kind of one that played about that formula a bit as well and it, but I feel like much like Palm Springs it kind of you know it didn't put too much emphasis on this kind of becoming the, the, the core of the entire film that became a lot more at play I think that I think films such as Happy Death Day was made to be kind of a nostalgic kind of kind of bounce back from Groundhog Day to kind of almost in a tribute kind of fashion I don't feel that that was the same with Palm Springs I think that it used um that kind of age-old trope to its advantage in the time in terms of narrative but I think that it kind of let other plot points kind of take hold as the film kind of progresses I think um it's interesting. So I can't speak to Happy Death Day because uh, I've not seen that. But I think something that I appreciate about the film and the way it uses this device, I think, is the way. So basically, whenever this device happens, right, it's it's used for the personal growth of a character in some sense, right. Um, and obviously, uh, Bill Murray's character in Groundhog Day, you know, he starts off as an asshole. He learns to not be an asshole. Um, you know, and then there's aspects to um, Edge of Tomorrow as well, where like the Tom Cruise character has growth to him as well. I think what I appreciate about this a little bit is, and it plays partially into the setting, perhaps, but mainly the journey that Sandberg's character Niles goes on, in particular. And it's not a case of that he starts off as, you know an asshole and learns not to be it's essentially that he's kind of given up um and when you look at it in terms of his station in life and his attitude to things there is a certain kind of poetry to the idea that he is living the same day over and over because arguably he and the other character sarah are in a situation where they are effectively even outside that, before they came to this wedding, living the same day over and over, um, in the sense that they can't progress and maybe they are repeating some personal mistakes, sure, but basically their circumstances are such that they can't really advance from that. Um, and I think when you then contrast that with... I think that, so. Th- there's a lot of very funny stuff here with J.K. Simmons as well, right, who plays someone who's also stuck in this time loop. It's very much a, a short role, It's not a big thing, but I think it is kind of crucial to balancing the ideas of the film because then when you look at the way he has reacted to it and without giving anything away, I'm not going to go into details about it and how he has come to deal with this scenario, let's say, that I think highlights the contrast between that and Sandberg's character in terms of what you can find solace in. And that, to me, lends a little bit more weight to the developing connection between Kristen Milioti's character and his. So, yes, it is it is a device which has been used before. Um, it's maybe not nodding to it uh, constantly, but I actually think the way it used it for its characters is actually 
is actually quite interesting. Um, and I think that Andy Samberg's performance in this is actually really quite good. Um, you know, I mean, he's a funny guy, and I think he's he's somebody who there's something about his delivery I just connect with very well in terms of being able to find it funny. But I think he's actually got some really good weight behind this performance as well um you know i i I really got into it is it a perfect film no um and i don't think it's i'm maybe giving it a bit too much credit for its depth here in what i'm saying but i i do think i i do think there is more to it i think and i i and i appreciated that character trajectory it went for and how it used the the central kind of like high concept device to communicate that yeah i'm gonna give it Maybe again more depth than it than it needs, um, but I I read it as being about the search for meaning uh, and embracing love as a source of meaning amidst this meaninglessness of of life and existence. Like you say at the start of the film, Andy Samberg is fairly he's a nihilist. You know, his life is life is meaningless because his life is meaningless. He's stuck in a time loop where his actions do not have consequences, um, and I think. That time loop, that narrative conceit, helped bring in that that sense of meaninglessness, um, which goes towards this theme of finding love as a source of meaning. Because I think you'd be hard pressed to establish the meaninglessness of of life in general in in this kind of ninety minute film without spending a lot of time on it. But the time loop is a shortcut to get to that point. Yeah, I I agree. Um... I think it's a very kooky film. It kind of blends a lot of genres together, but at the same time, it never really sort of radiates its intricity that you'd expect from the collision between the kind of comedy, fantasy, romance um, hybrid. I think, if anything, you know, it's quite admirable for the way it plays within kind of the philosophical narrative conventions at the heart of it. Like, a lot of comedies, particularly darker ones, experiment with kind of nihilism and consequentialist theories in a way. And uh, But I think, you know... And this is down to, I think, Andy Serra's screenplay and um, Max Barbicule's, um direction and very much a, a balance of merit, you know. It's difficult to credit one more than the other. It's a film that kind of manages to incorporate a pretty in-depth debate in the way that, it, like, an existentialist debate in the way it doesn't really distort and change the tone. It doesn't really have that sort of narrative formula we see a lot where it starts off fairly light and descends pretty rapidly into the abyss. We kind of have a plot centered around people forced to relive the same day with it moving forward with their lives. But it sways on top of this kind of idyllic holiday resort. And it's like, well, yeah, it's not great, but at least it's, it's happening in Palm Springs of all places. So there's this kind of refreshing optimism um, behind the chaos that's unfolding. So I think that I found it, you know, I wouldn't say it's a perfect film. I find it quite refreshing in the way that it, it kind of took on the, the time loop trope and the kind of... Um, philosophical um, comedy and fantasy and made it its own in a way I think that and especially in, you know, it didn't have a lot of time to really go into heavy detail with all of that but I think the way that it channeled it through um, within the characters and I think that um, the characters were all perfectly cast it's always a pleasure to see like J.K. Simmons I think that he's one of the most consistently versatile actors and he's a joy to watch and anything Andy Samberg he, he's a, a great comedic actor I think you know um, most notably I think from Brooklyn Nine-Nine now and you've got Kristen Milotti who's had her fair share of kind of American sitcom guest appearances and I think especially the more kind of Sandberg and Milotti bounce off each other with ease in this film I think it makes they really make it 
quite easy to watch. Yeah, I mean, I I I hear all that, and I think um, you know, I ha I haven't seen Happy Death Day either, and didn't know we were kind of going through a golden era of um, time loop films. But uh, I mean, when you're saying you know it's dealing with the mindlessness of, uh, you know, like the the boringness of every day and stuff like that, and it's a rom com, I still, I mean, again, it goes back to this Groundhog Day essentially did that itself, you know, and it was, and and so it just. It, it is interesting, and, and I don't know if Andy Samberg did his greatest, uh, you know, acting performance here. I mean, there were a couple times where I felt very, like, oh, like, that wasn't, <laughs> he was trying to be serious there, and it didn't really w work. I mean, he's very funny. I laughed out loud. Um, it was interesting to take another two other characters with you in that time loop, so that was unique and different. Um, I guess I just didn't. I didn't, maybe I had higher expectations on it or something. It just didn't, it didn't seem like it, it, it paid homage enough to its original sort of inspiration as well as like deliver something that was any more exciting other than it was in a warmer climate. I think um, it, it's interesting. Like, and it, it, I, I, I agree. For me, it's not quite up there with um, Groundhog Day. Like, it's the old thing. Like, if to if if you only had the kind of the you know the original negatives for each film, that was the last thing of it in existence, and I need to save one from a burning house, and I could only do one, I'd probably do Groundhog Day, right? But having said that, I do think there is something here about. I I think this will speak to different generations differently, right? And I think particularly people who are maybe like you know quite a bit younger than I am, I think will probably connect more with the feeling that Samberg manages to generate in this film than they would in something like um, Groundhog Day. And that's that's not to say that they won't connect with Groundhog Day. It's more kind of like the emotional the emotional arc that he has in this film, I think, speaks to the sort of group I'm talking about here. And they captured it. So for me, I think it's more a case of it's not that... Um, for me, it's not that other films have done it better, although sure, some have, but it's more the journey it takes its character on is a little bit different. And I think what I liked about it is I felt like the time loop aspect of that played into that. Um, because it's taken this kind of ridiculous fantasy concept and it's used that to evoke a feeling about how that character, or those characters, if we look at... Um, Chris and Meliotis as well feel about their their position in life and where they where they are in relation to what society expects of them. I would say. Um, so in that sense, I think it's quite. I think it's basically it's it's a light romantic comedy, but I think it's got enough smarts to it to give it a little bit more to make it a little bit more memorable. Um, you know, because like I, I, there's a lot of skilled comedic actors out there, skilled physical comedic actors, skilled verbal comedic actors. It'd be very easy to make a film that is quite funny, and I think they've done that here. It's a funny film to me. I laughed. I I laughed quite a bit watching it. But I do think it's got this melancholic edge that it manages to blend in pretty well. Um, and I think that's something that Steph said, which I would agree with. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like there's a sharp left turn in tone at any point. There are points where it goes a little bit more somber, introspective, or it becomes a little bit more serious. But for me, it moved in and out of that and some of the more absurdist um, stuff and the more overtly 
funny stuff quite well. And I think that's down to the performances mainly. Undoubtedly a bit of the direction also. But I think the way it's balanced all those tones and heightened the emotional feeling that it wants to generate through this um, time loop device, to me it worked it, it worked really pretty well, I think, in doing that. The comedy for me as well was quite fresh and quite uh, different. I mean, it's produced by The Lonely Island, uh, Andy Samberg's comedy trio, and you can feel their sort of absurdist, self-aware stamp on the comedy. Um, I'm a big fan of The Lonely Island. Uh, I really love pop star Never Stop, Never Stopping. Um, and I, I really, really, yeah, it really clicked with me. Well, it's certainly funny, and we certainly think you should check it out. And um, you can tell us whether or not you like this one as much as Groundhog Day. Um, and uh, <laughs> it will come out on the 9th of April on Amazon Prime. Uh, so look out for that. All right, so we're back, and I'm here with Alistair Cole, who's the director of Urim. Um, that's a Gaelic for boat song. Uh, Alistair, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Amanda. Great, and we're actually chatting at, um, earlier than when this comes out, but uh, during uh, during the world premiere of the uh, uh, right before the world premiere of the film of the at the Glasgow Film Festival um so tell me a little bit about how this project even came about um firstly it's a stunning film I recommend anyone and everyone to see it um but uh how did you come up with this this project great thanks thanks for the kind words about the film yeah I mean it's a so it's a feature documentary it's very much a creative documentary um but it's you know it's fundamentally about Gaelic and, and the fishing community of the Outer Hebrides and you know for audiences that haven't seen it or seen a trailer it's it's entirely composed of sound archive that was recorded in the 1940s and 50s and 60s in the Outer Hebrides and then visually um, entirely composed of contemporary um, observational sort of an observational portrait that I filmed over over two or three years in the in the islands and it stems from, you know, it stems from a, an observation and some research that was was has been being done at the University of Edinburgh um, by a colleague called Magnus Kors, who's also the film's co-producer. That's really about this connection between the Gaelic language and the fishing communities, and this kind of really inherent tie that exists. That anything that were to happen to the fishing industry and community is very much in, uh, interlinked with the, the Gaelic language, and that's not only through the sort of speakers, um, the fishermen themselves, which seventy-five percent of the the, the inshore fishermen that think uh, you know speak um, Gaelic on the boats, and then and that's a much higher percentage than than sort of you'll find in the everyday community, but also it's tied you know inherently to the place and and to the landscape and to the sea and this knowledge that's tied into it. So really, the project started from that idea and thinking about ways to 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 you know to bring the past into the present and to understand that relationship between the past and the present. Um, and just going to the Outer Hebrides, going somewhere like that, you're very much aware of it when you're in there through through the sea and through the boats. They've all got these objects and places and people have stories to tell, and the stories are there. And fortunately, through the sound archive, they're also recorded in, in a way. You know, this was material, audio recordings that were recorded when portable sound recording first, you know, was invented, and, and it's an extraordinary archive that's housed at the School of Scottish Studies that um, underpins the film, but... You know, we had access to thirty thousand clips to, to to work with, which is 
we did not put 30,000 clips in the film. Thankfully, I wouldn't have managed that. But you know, it's a, it's an interesting, it was an interesting creative project that was sort of an experiment in a way to see what would happen if you, if you literally, we said that one, I wonder what would happen if you, if you had a film that was just an archive and just contemporary visuals and, and also as, as a mechanism to explore these themes. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's what was so powerful to me is that it normally flips your idea of an archive film. Um, but it's so important to that. If from my understanding of um, the tradition of the Gallic community, oral, the oral tradition and that archive is so important to, to that community. And so it so rings true to that area. Uh, but um, how did you go about the filming? I mean, one of the things I really particularly like too is like, you know, you look at the, some of your shots are just absolutely stunning, like, you know, underwater, outdoors, you know, just the the typical thing that you think about with the Outer Hebrides in Scotland. But there are moments where you're looking at the contemporary with the mix of the older, you know, older soundscapes that, you know, are just like every day or, you know, kind of I was thinking about this sports direct mug that like one of the um, the sailors or or whatnot um, was holding. And it's just doesn't, doesn't sort of match up with like your dreamy version of you know like like scotland so how did you go about choosing how, what to film and where to film and how to film well it's, i mean it's an interesting point because in some ways we you know the film was a little bit a touch of it was made back to front it wasn't ideally made but um because we I'd, i filmed a lot i was filming while i was listening to a lot of archive and researching a lot of archive so and it takes you know it took a huge amount of time to to just to get to a stage where we had a kind of wide long list of sound archive that i could to, we could sit down with the editor and start to actually navigate and you know it was piles of paper of notes and things that we'd been listening to and and at the same time I was filming all the time thinking what I really wanted to capture was this a kind of portrait of the people and the and the contemporary you know fishing community and seafaring community today which is really everyone in the islands because the, the, they're islands you know it's the sea and the fishing world is is very much part and parcel of the, the community so it was important to get on the boats, obviously, and and had some great um, access through through the Western Isles Fishing Association. They, you know, I spent a lot of time on the inshore boats, which are the kind of boats that bring up creels and they're fishing for lobsters and crabs. But then also on the on the kind of trawlers that which sit just outside there and and, and catch a lot of prawns and things. And it was about showing, you know, like any documentary film, you want to provide a, a window into a world that audiences otherwise wouldn't see. So that was one objective, but also to capture the yeah, the everyday and the reality of, of, of what is a really tough, dangerous job, actually, on the sea especially. But it's something that is, you know, they're very passionate about, these, these guys, you know. And it's, yes, it's tough, and yes, it's, you know, they, they often end up in pretty, pretty gnarly situations. But um, they, you know, they love the sea, and there is a real beauty. And obviously, you're sitting in the minch, and it's 2 a.m., and they're trawling in the middle of summer, and the sun's coming up, and the gannets are dropping. They they get to enjoy these moments and they're, they're really fortunate but at the same time a storm will come through and things can get hairy so they they're really skilled and but you need to you need to capture both sides of that i think and um and it also goes for the onshore work i mean one of the things we we made a big effort to do was also understand this relationship between the land and the sea and the processing of the seafood itself is a, is a great example of that because it's actually steeped in history so as much as people think about the seafaring stories and, and a lot of the archive were about tragedies and the fishermen talking about how they used to do things. Actually, what we really wanted and was important was the female voice within that because it's it absolutely is part and parcel of that world. And it was in the, it was in the archive, but as with every archive, they're absolutely 
fraught with politics and and dynamics of the time of when they were caught you could you know you could hear the you know you could hear the nature of the recordists of, of just what you know 1950s men going up to the islands and how they would even engage with the, some of the recorders was pretty difficult to hear sometimes but they, you know it's it's a, it is a sign of the time but it's also an observation of the the progress when you listen to these but today that processing you know that is done on shore and it's it's there's some amazing factories there that, that that take basically the catch from the fishing boats and they're processing it straight away a lot of the ladies working in there are still the partners of the fishermen um, and and that goes across from Bada to Grimsey we filmed and up in Stornoway and and to, to, to we matched a lot of them with sort of the female stories of the herring girls for instance who were working on the shore and and, the, and they were a traveling group you know they would the girls would leave from Harris and go to the mainland or go down to Bada and, and go with the fleet, which are amazing stories of, you know, just how many boats and how many people were working on that in the 1920s. But in reality, you know, prawns are the modern herrings, <laughs> if, you want to, if you want to think of it that way, because that is, that's what's getting um, fished up there at the moment, and that sense of collectiveness that comes between, the, between the, both the aspects on shore and, and, and the sea was really important to give that portraiture of... The islands as a whole so yes you get beautiful suns i mean i i to be fair there was a point where it was too beautiful like some i got sent back by the editor and the producer to go and find some storms really because i you know the trouble was when you're filming on boats they no one will take you out if it's stormy so you end up just in these beautiful conditions all the time but um i i, I went up i did a few shoots in january that sorted that out pretty quick yeah and so you produced and i mean you you edit did you do the editing as well but you filmed most of it then so yeah i, I filmed most of it no but i work with a wonderful editor called, editor called colin Moni, and colin Moni is um we're really lucky to have him on board with this film um he's got a strong connection with a with a he's not a gaelic speaker but his you know his family is and his children are and, and he's got a really strong connection to the islands and you know he he's worked on some great scottish fiction films sort of magdalene sisters and these these types of films so he brought with him a really wonderful cinematic sensibility and and an understanding of audiences as well um that you know a really great editor does and and, and we were you know he, i was lucky to have him on board we got great support from from screen scotland and bbc alberta that you know they took a chance on the project everyone did and adam daughtry the producer as well um because it was a, you know it started as a concept really like and, and i literally had a proof of concept to show them at the start to say this is how it might work and then we you know we we started from this position of all this archive and all these notes that i had and the, the kind of rough assembly of the sound archive and all the film material then colin and i sort of waded through all that together um and yeah we were we were lucky with timing and all sorts of things but we, we did a lot of work we got the large majority of the edit sort of done just before lockdown um but even stranger we had planned to film finish the finish the edit remotely um we were probably the only film production that had happened to do this in, in january last year and we're literally ready when lockdown happened we were accidentally ready to edit remotely so we were able to finish it at the time um but yeah i, I think with any film, the editor's role, especially in documentary film, the editor's role sort of can't be overstated. And, and you know, there's a reason they get a very, they get one of the first credits because they are the, you know, they're the, the, the eyes and the storytellers that that can really make these things work. And with this film, it was no exception. And, and, and you know, we sat plowing through this material and making decisions, but it was, it was Colin and I together really at that stage.
you mentioned that, well, I'm actually like when I first read and was interested in, in, in looking at the film, um, it says it's the first feature documentary ever to be done in Gaelic. And um, but uh, you yourself mentioned you don't necessarily speak Gaelic, but it could it's very much an it's for an audience, you say, that isn't a Gaelic speaking per se. Um, yeah, I, I think that's really fascinating. Can you can you elaborate a little? Yeah, I mean, it was a bit of an anomaly that we we sort of discovered it quite a wee way into the edit that that we were making a, a documentary film for cinema, and obviously some like BBC Elbow are a supporter of the project. They make great Gaelic television and really great you know TV docs, and they exist. But creative documentary and cinema documentary is its own sort of entity, and, and Scottish Scotland in the last ten fifteen years has you know had a really burgeoning scene with this and. I think there was a combination of that, and, and I, you know, this is my second feature doc as well, and I suppose, I've, you know, the Screen Scotland and Scotland to support that has, has created this place where this could this could happen. But at the same time, it was, you know, we just sort of suddenly realised that the film was entirely in Scottish Gaelic, and had that been done before, and if I think if you went and shot an observational doc in the islands now, you would most likely get a, a, a bit of a mix. So there was a yeah, you know, it was a bit of an, a happy accident with the archive, but it makes an interesting point that the language itself it hasn't happened before. There's been a wonderful feature fiction film done in 2008 called The Inex Inaccessible Pinnacle that um, Chris Young produced, and and so that was the first you know full fiction in entirely in Scottish Gaelic. But at the same time, I think there's um you know this it's an interesting commentary to think about maybe why it hasn't happened before in a sense and, and, and to have us reflect a little bit about you know Scott, British language and, and then that British multilingualism and its representation in, in, in cinema because you are making it for an audience and I think maybe there's a there's an inclination from filmmakers distributors funders whoever there has been in the past to think that, that you know then that we need to do these things in English but actually what this film reveals and, and, and what the interest in the Scottish Gaelic language now reveals you know it's got, Duolingo in Scots Gaelic has 600,000 people using it right now, 200,000 in Scotland. There's a real interest. And, and people, you know, can handle subtitles. They, it's fine, you know. If, if, if Parasite can become, the, you know, one of the most watched films, people can handle watching a Scottish Gaelic film. And there's a lot to offer through that. And the language itself brings with it incredible cinematic sensibility because it is an oral language. It's a storytelling language. So it offers a, a great amount to a filmmaker like me. Um, to to explore something really fascinating, but also to to bring something maybe to an audience like you said that isn't. Yes, we we want this to we want this to be able to be loved and appreciated in the islands and by the Gaelic and by the Gaelic speakers. But there's also a lot to say that cinema can say outside of that as well to a non-Gaelic audience. And you know that we are releasing this film on the after the Scott, uh, the Glasgow Film Festival gets released theatrically, but we're actually releasing it in ten versions. Because we're releasing it in French, German, Italian, Spanish as well. Because we we have them. Because it's a virtual release, we can put it out. But also with Gaelic audio description, English audio description, Gaelic subtitles without subtitles. Because you know there's a there's an there's a there's a benefit to the virtual release that we can do this. But also, um, you know, it's it's like any foreign language film. I think it can it can be understood in the, those terms. The, the title is Yoram and. The English title, the translation is boat song. The Italian title is Canto di Voga. You know, it's it's that's so there isn't. Yeah, we don't want to prioritize English. And yes, it's a big part of obviously it's our language, but we can we can have this film viewed um, by English audiences in the same way that French audiences and Spanish audiences will hopefully get to see it as well and take something from it and also, you know, find find the universal 
because at the end of the day it's a film about storytelling and Kaylee's and and oral history which are which are you know very universal elements yeah absolutely um you can't not talk about uh the soundtrack uh it's absolutely incredible um it's yeah. a Aiden Rourke is that Aiden O'Rourke yeah Aiden O'Rourke uh absolutely worth looking up he, he I mean he has become you know a good pal to this project he's a wonderful musician I we were again really lucky to have him agree to come on board um that he sort of you know believed in the project very early on he's from Oban originally but you know he plays with a band called Lao um and who are an extraordinary but in some ways I you know we we pro I was almost surprised that he this is his first film score but when you hear his music it's very cinematic and and in the way he approaches it and he was a perfect musician because what he does musically is about is in some ways what we're trying to do with the film and, and combining the past and the present um and you know he has he's a a fiddle player by trade but very much a, a multi-instrumentalist composer and brings a lot of uh you know electronic effects and sounds and loops and all these things and he and he brought that to the to the score to create something that was really special we think and it was interesting the way we had to do it because it wasn't really normal as far as a, a finishing the film, giving the film, score the film, we we Aiden was always on board from the rough cut stage, so he engaged at that point. So we were able to send him a, an early cut and for him to respond to, start sending ideas through, and start developing them. And we were, you know, it was a very wonderful and collaborative project um, because of that. Modeled on a few other films, modeled on a film called From Scotland with Love that Colin also edited, and and that was done with King Creer. So and there is this we wanted the music to be part of the film and to to have a real musicality and a lyricism and we knew that you know Aiden could bring that but it's also a very hard process it's a really tough gig as a musician in some ways and it's testament to how to Aiden to, to what it's come out like because you know you're not writing songs you you've got a lot to compose and a lot of ideas and and to develop them and and with this particular film it was also him responding to the archive and engaging with the archive so you you have these amazing, some of my favorite moments in the score are where he's actually accompanying the singers, which are, these, are, these are people that were recorded in their kitchens in South Uist in 1940-something, and here's Aidan and a group of nine musicians accompanying them as they, you know, normally sing out of tune and drop keys, so he's got to drop keys with them, which is tough going, but they did it, and, 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 it, and it, then again you have these, it brings together the content, what we're seeing, what we're hearing in, in both counts, and to create something that we think, you know, is 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 quite unique and, and special for those moments, especially. And you, I should say, sorry that the, the the score is coming out. It is coming out as a as a full score. So Aiden will be releasing that. Um, it's I think a bit later in the year when hopefully we'll be able to see the film in, in real cinemas as well. But you can pre-order it with Reveal Records or just. But look up Aiden anyway. He's great. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, it's nice that you mentioned from Scotland with love, as we're we're sharing that as part of our Cinescapes project this right. month, in March. And um, yeah, I just I, I definitely saw those ties. But then again, just really thought about how, and I didn't realize the editor was had edited both. Yeah, and it was a great. I mean, and and Virginia, who directed it, and Grant, who produced it, uh, you know, like they were kind enough to share some, you know, to to help me as well early on in the project to share some thoughts about approaches to even the production of a film like this, which is which is tricky, you know, and 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 they did a wonderful job, and and I think it provided a yeah, it prov especially within yeah that editing music relationship that Colin sort of you know, led and figured out with what he did with um, King Creosote there helped us a lot to, to figure out the best approach for this right. as well. Yeah.
Um, so, or it premiered uh, at uh, the Glasgow Film Festival. And what's what's kind of the rest of your trajectory? How do you see how do you see the film? So at the moment, so we, uh, you know, we we we're launching the film in an interesting time. So it got a bit delayed with COVID, to be honest. But at the same time, it's given us a moment in time where the film actually speaks to a really you know contemporary issue, which is you know Scottish fishing and and the, and the Gaelic language and and the fact that Scottish fishing is on the front pages and you know a current issue means that hope we hope the film can really engage in that audience you know in that in that wider discussion as well um it's obviously not an issue based film but it, it hopefully speaks to that and so we're going we are immediately after the glasgow film festival on march the 5th which is the friday march the 5th the film will be um available in i think over 30 cinemas in the uk and through the, the 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 kind of cinema at home system so in scotland sort of film house gft dca these places you'll be able to watch it on their websites, available on their websites, and and you know that's that's the cinema at home system, and and it's it's a really interesting way to I think again you'll get access to Q and A's and to a lot of different versions of the film, so the film's available I think it'll be up to ten versions of that, which includes audio described, for Gaelic subtitles, English subtitles, French, Spanish, all sorts of things, which which is a nice way to you know to to highlight the kind of the, this language dynamic and. Um, and yeah, so you'll be able to find that. So if you if you if you want to look it up, you can look up yourdomfilm.com, and you'll see where that's available, um, or check out your local independent cinema, and hopefully they'll be screening it. Great. Well, um, yeah. Thanks again. I mean, what's what's you know, was this? I don't know the rest of your work, but is this something that like has kind of been similar to what you've done, or is this transforming you thinking about something or your next well, thing? Well, it's cinema. Yeah. I mean, I have I've been making films about language for quite a wee while, <laughs> and that's sort of that stems. So I bridge academia and, and filmmaking as well. I'm a lecturer at Newcastle University, in um in film practice. But at the same time, my real interest research wise has has always been around language and society, and and, and I think documentary film provides a really interesting. Um, creative documentary film provides a really interesting mechanism to explore that sort of issue because it's you know it's it's fundamentally quite cinematic. So my previous feature was about uh, was was in Africa actually about mother tongue education in Africa, but and and other films have been about multilingual couples and Finnish humour and these things. But the, uh, the the sound archive has triggered something. There has been something very sort of interesting for me as a filmmaker um, about working with sound archive and the result of this. And so there's a couple of projects we're developing at the moment that. That sort of may build on what we've learned here um, around what is possible with sound archive because there is these incredible sound archives all around the world and and so one of them yeah might be actually back in New Zealand um, where I was originally born hence the accent but the um, but you know it's it, it, there's a lot of stories and 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 worlds caught up in these sound archives and there we I think there may just be some interesting films to be made that 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 can embrace them and and, and create some interesting cinema great well i definitely look forward to seeing what what else you're you're going to work on and i really loved this film and uh we'll we'll share it as much as we can because uh yeah congratulations it was really great so it was really lovely talking to you as well so thanks great. so much for joining us thank you very much for having me amanda Well, that wraps us up for this month um and uh thank you everybody for uh joining us uh steph thanks again for being um being on our our show um what's what's your plans for this month uh, no problem thank you for having me again um i'm currently working on a 
um, feature article that I've been wanting to do for a while about um, the late Adrienne Shelley, one of the female directors that I really admire. And I think that um, the whole International Women's Day, Women's Week, bringing it up, it, gets, it got me quite down a hole with all the kind of new new and old female talent that um, has been around for the, the past um, few decades especially that are quite fresh in my mind. So I'm trying to get a bit of that down on paper while it's still there. So it, it involves mostly just... Um, digging up old DVDs and um, trying to think as clear as possible, and um, I've got a few other uh, reviews on the on the horizon as well for um, various different things. But um, mostly just uh, working through the through lockdown until it ends, until I can have some more human contact, which I'm very looking forward to. <laughs> yeah, I know, and spring weather too. It's just kind of like. At, the, at some point, it, 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 it seems to be shining, the sun shines, and then it gets cold again. But um, yeah, no, I'm very much looking forward to reading that. Um, it sounds it sounds fantastic. And Simon, thank you so much for being part of um, our show for the first time. And um, what's on your film plans for 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 the next bit? Yeah, thank you. I've had a, had a great time. Um, I'm currently working on two bigger articles. Um, one is on the one of the time loop video games that I mentioned actually out of wilds and currently working on a quite a hefty article about that and I have another piece to write for uh, the Twin Peaks the return online conference uh, which is happening in a few months um, so I need to need to get that written and I'm also hoping to squeeze in a couple of reviews uh, over the next month or so too. It's great, and I didn't know we had the time loop expert, but um, good to good to know. <laughs> I can't wait to can't wait to read it because I I learned a lot on this um podcast um on what else is out there um in that in that genre, if you will. Jim, um, as always, I'm sure you're um on a festival uh a virtual festival run um in the future and the in the past and recently and and the and whatnot. Yeah, it seems to be a constant state of being at this point, really. Um, yeah, I think between now and the next show, the main things are um, to a little bit of South by Southwest, um, although quite a lot of their stuff is geo-blocked, so I don't know how much I'll actually end up being able to view, but I'm hoping to at least see a, a couple of things there, a couple of interesting things floating around there. Um, BFI Flare um, is also um, going to be coming up just as this podcast goes out really uh, and there's some stuff i've already seen there which i know is pretty good there's a couple of things that were at glasgow which are going to be there so if that that's that's a festival as well we're checking out it's completely online this year and then after that another thing that i'm going to try and take a look at is uh, glasgow short film festival is going to be coming up at the end of the month um and in particular there's a lot of a couple of the shorts there i've seen but i haven't seen a lot of them so i'll probably try and check out probably mainly the scottish competition stuff but again it looks like an excellent festival and if you haven't seen their trailer actually go watch their trailer for their festival it is honestly the funniest thing that i've seen in some time so check glasgow short film festival is really unique and and that they had a really interesting um guest season last time when they were online so i i, I completely agree i haven't seen the trailer but i'll have to check it out um but absolutely yeah so um that yeah that's that wraps it i as as mentioned earlier uh this uh you know we're we're getting we're getting going going as much as we can. Lockdown has pushed us back on the Cinescapes, but we're touring. Um, we're starting a tour virtually with uh, Fife, 
um, this Sunday. Uh, so we hope that you and you can um, check it out from Scotland with Love. It's a good way to start a series that tours um, Scotland. Um, it's quite a powerful documentary. So um, definitely Bitly Dash and Escapes Fife is where you should check it out. And uh, yeah, stay tuned for more from us next month.